You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. This week you'll hear the conversation that I had with Dr. Graham Redgrave. Now, Graham is the Assistant Director of the Eating Disorders Program at Johns Hopkins. The reason that I reached out to him was because he was an author on a study that was actually published in 2015 and the title to that study was Refeeding and Weight Restoration Outcomes in Anorexia Nervosa, Challenging the Current Guidelines. Now that piqued my interest because I absolutely love to do nothing more than challenge the current guidelines, especially when it comes to um, the amount that people are fed in treatment and the rate at which they are supposed to gain weight. Um, It was a really fabulous conversation actually, and there's almost so much in this that I don't even know how to sum it up. We talk about challenging the current guidelines when it comes to refeeding, but What really I found came out a lot in talking to um, Graham was is wanting to listen to the people whom they are serving and actually treating the individual and not um, assuming that just because somebody is failing to gain weight or failing to thrive um, with the treatment that they have, that they are resistant and that maybe tweaking the treatment is what is needed for that person. And I love that because I've believe that everybody can make a full recovery and I think with adults especially taking an individualized approach is key but oh I mean we get into the problem with BMI we get into the problem with too low intakes we get into the problem of discharging people when they're at BMI 19 or we get into the the difference between um, weight restoration and actually achieving mental state restoration which is required for full remission this is one of the most important conversations that i think i've had this year and believe me i've had many great conversations with people so i hope you feel the same way and enjoy it as well um the first question that i asked graham was to tell us a little bit about himself and here he is So I'm a psychiatrist. Um, so I came to medical school at Johns Hopkins. I have been uh, a member of the eating disorders faculty since since then. I found eating disorders as sort of an area of clinical interest during my training uh, and developed collegial relationships with the folks um, in the rest, you know, the other folks on the team. That felt really good. Uh, I really liked the intellectual kind of questions um, and I really like eating disorder patients, actually, and uh, and so decided to uh, to stick around. Um, and you know, when you do an academic career, uh, there are sort of different approaches to it. So I've um, had a, my career has been in sort of a bit of a mishmash so far, but we've worked pretty steadily to do the kinds of work that we're going to be talking about today, the kind of clinical outcomes. Uh, work, but I've also done some neuroimaging um, of uh, patients with anorexia and helped on a study with bulimia um, with uh, with Angela Guarda, who's the director of the program. Um, yeah, and so we've also done so. We've also collaborated with other researchers here in to try to understand some of the basic science mechanisms that underlie normal feeding and eating behavior. Um, and and try to apply animal models actually uh, of, of binge eating or or anorexia 
I love I love the animal models, and my my main reason for loving the animal models is because you can't psychoanalyze it. That's you, right. That's <laughs> you right. can't say, "Hey, Mr. Rat, why did you <laughs> yeah. start running in that wheel more when you're not eating? Is it, you know, are you training for a marathon, or are you, are you trying to alleviate depression, or yes, right, exactly. is it just a compulsion?" And in and in fact, I use the I use. I use the animal models to talk to patients, be, and I think it's really helpful to sort of say, "Look, we're all animals, and uh, and we all behave in ways that we're not fully aware of, and we make up reasons why we do things." Mm-hmm. Uh, and the yeah, and the important thing is to recognize that the behavior has its own momentum. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you can take so somebody who is um, exercising compulsively and resistant to stopping and they're giving all these reasons like, oh, the exercising's part of my identity and it's nothing to do with the eating disorder. And then you say, hey, well, look, we took these rats and we starved them and they all started exercising more the lower weight they got. It sort of makes even myself, who was a compulsive exerciser, think, Okay, well, maybe it's just a compulsion, <laughs> and yeah. I don't need to read so much into it, as our brains love to shove logic over the top of everything to justify our behaviors. Logic and meaning, and I think that's really important. It's important that you meet people where they are when you're trying to help them. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have to engage them at the level of meaning, but at the same time sort of say, okay, but I think you're, I think all this search for meaning or the underlying cause or whatever, I think it's actually getting in the way. So can we, can we please stop? the boulder from rolling down the hill and then it, you know, and then after, after we've stopped all the damage from happening, then we can go back and figure out what, what was it that pushed it down the hill so it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I love, I love the animal models and I think they are so, I think they're so helpful to patients as, as you said, and, and, uh, I wasn't really anybody's patient ever, but I found even being able to research, research that stuff myself, it was, it was able, helpful for me to extract my own meaning that had been plastered over the top of my behaviors um, and, and see them as behaviors and think, well, why don't we just try taking them away and see if the meaning still exists afterwards, a good year or so afterwards, which for most of the things it didn't at all. Um, so what we were going to talk about today was um, uh, refeeding and weight restoration outcomes in anorexia nervosa, challenging current guidelines. Yeah, I'd love for you to tell us about that. Okay, so um, one of the one of the things that we've been trying to do is uh, run an, an outcomes study, um, and so uh, really f- since about two thousand three, we've been collecting data. So when patients come to the unit, they have the opportunity to participate in this study. Uh, they fill out a bunch of questionnaires about what their um, you know, what their sort of levels of depression are and what their personalities like and, um, and what their behaviors were. And then, you know, the way, uh, the way it goes, we, we measured lots of things while they were in treatment, how fast they were gaining weight and so forth and what weight they were discharged. Um, and, uh, and then whether they stepped down to our partial hospital program, one of the things that's sort of interesting about our program is that not everybody goes inpatient first. So, so if someone comes to our clinic and we meet them and evaluate them and say, okay, we think you, you know, we think you should, this is the diagnosis and this is the treatment and we think you should gain some weight. We give, we give almost everybody a chance to do it as an outpatient first, but, um, whether they're, whether they're coming from our clinic or from an outside clinic. If they've tried that and it hasn't worked, then we go right to inpatient rather than stepping up one level to a partial hospital. So 
uh, bring everybody in, um, get them as close to their goal weight as we can, given the constraints of insurance, um, which is a big deal. Um, and then, st- and then have folks go, go to our day hospital if they can possibly manage that and then get them to, um, uh, and then really work in the day hospital in the partial hospital. I'm going to use those ter- two terms kind of, uh, interchangeably. Okay. But, um, yeah, so it, when they're in the, in our partial hospital program, we really work on relapse prevention. So focusing less on the weight gain, although usually patients are doing some weight restoration while they're in partial hospital, but the shift in the focus is more on, can you make a meal? Can you go eat uh, at a restaurant? Can you go shopping for food? Um, and, uh, you know, and, and other things too related to kind of resuming functions that have often been lost, particularly for folks who've been sick for a long time. So school function, occupational uh, work and things like that. So, um, and so we've known for a long time that our rates of weight gain um, are high, uh, higher than um, the American Psychiatric Association um, suggests as a minimum, for example, or NICE, which is the UK, they're the body that says that sort of sets clinical standards. And they say roughly, you should, you should probably expect one kilo per week. But it's, that's not to say that more than that is bad. It's just to say weight gain, getting patients to gain weight is really hard. And this should be a goal, something to shoot for. And we could talk about why I think we have the higher rates of weight gain. We can talk about that, but if you, if you like. But, um, but we've noticed that ours was higher. And then over the last couple of years, more and more adolescent programs in particular were experimenting with more rapid uh, rates of weight gain, uh, higher calorie prescriptions and so forth. And so um, eventually we, we wrote a, a sort of a systematic review that included this paper, but, that, but then also included a bunch of other papers to sort of say, well, you know, really there are some, there are some reasons why this might be a good idea might not work for everybody but there are some reasons why we think this is a good good way to go and maybe we should try to be getting everybody to do it um frankly um and so that's why the slightly pugilistic title of challenging outcomes you know uh um because we we do want to sort of say we think that there are some real benefits and uh you know and 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 you can still do it and maintain good relationships with patients and their families and so forth but but and look, you can do it safely. Yeah, so I am interested in um, why you think that um, you achieve a higher or a faster uh, rate of gain. But I am also interested in what you just mentioned there as to what you think the benefits of doing so are. Well, so uh, because nobody has infinite time or money to um, engage in treatment because uh, you know, patients are, folks are wanting to get back to their lives, um, insurance companies have, have, do not have deep pockets and are, you know, reluctant, uh, to pay. Um, it's not, it's not unusual for, for stays to be sort of limited in, in, in terms of how long, how long folks can stay on, stay on a unit. And, uh, and so one thing that we've seen in the literature is that there's a very strong correlation between the weight at which someone is discharged and then how they're doing later. And I, uh, Daniel Rigaud and his colleagues did this wonderful study, this 13 year outcome study of 484 patients in France uh, that showed that there was this incredibly clear dose response 
kind of relationship. That is the higher your body mass index, which is a measure of weight for height, the higher your body mass index was at the time of discharge, the more likely you were to remain recovered um, for the first two years. And they did very close follow-up, very careful follow-up, and they actually measured those weights and so forth. And and that that's powerful. Um, and that's not the only data, but that's the most, that's the cleanest and the largest sample and so forth. And uh, given that we only have a limited time to, to work with patients who come, it, it seemed to make the most sense that you would try to get somebody to their goal weight um, as quickly as you could. Although that wasn't, uh, this was not a, we didn't prospectively design a treatment, or Dr. Guarda didn't, Angela didn't, but uh, to, in or, just simply in order to do that, but that is, this wasn't a this wasn't a carefully constructed trial. This was a naturalistic uh, study, right? So we just said this is what we're doing, um, and there are some limitations of that methodology. But it does mean that our unit's one that runs w- runs well and that has a you know has an approach that produces this very consistently over time. Did I answer the question? Because I'm not. Yeah, I was asking sort of what what you what you thought the benefits were, and and. Um... I guess you're applying to what you can see, which is that people who come out of a higher weight and due to the limited amount of time that we are generally given within treatment, then, you know, if you can come out with a higher weight, then your risk of relapse or losing weight afterwards is lower. And I think that that is, that's wonderful that there's data on that. I think that just from my personal experience of having been at a very low weight and then having weight restored and um also having had to deal with not just weight restoring to reach former remission but to um sort of rewiring my brain and and changing you know for those of us who are adults and we've had the illness for a very long time we can get we get weight restored but there's still the what we call the entrenchedness of the behavior and that's to do with the neural pathways that have been formed and strengthened so much when we've been sick and what i found was that um at a, at a higher weight, or sorry, at a higher intake, because the pressures of having to eat more food made me let go of many of the rules and behaviors that I had around eating food. So therefore, in the weight restoration process, in order to eat the high amount of food that I put myself on, I had to start the neural re- rewiring. And that is eating the foods I was scared of and eating them repetitively and let going of all of the food rules that I had that I was only allowed to eat a certain amount of food in X amount of time or that I was allowed to eat this food at this time of day and not another time of day. And I was only actually able to achieve that when I had set myself a caloric intake that was so high that I sort of had to thrash all of those rules in order to achieve that intake. Yes. And so I, I think that that's the part we can't measure the what this neural re- rewiring of a person's brain and weakening the rule set that's created by anorexia's operating system and strengthening a new one which is you can eat all foods that you want and and so so you should i think that that's that's where my, my interest comes in mostly because uh you know I, adults with um, anorexia that's sort of my my population most of us do have these entrenched behaviors due to 10, 20, 30 years within the illness. And weight restoration is a vital, vital, vital step. But then there's this neural rewiring that has to happen at the same time. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested in that side of things. But actually, <laughs> to that extent, anything that challenges the current guidelines and says that we should be aiming to eat more food is helpful. Because one of the bigger problems and that I see with, with adults, and I... 
I see it with adults because by the time someone's an adult with an eating disorder, they've usually been through treatment cycles a couple of times. Mm. And that magic one kilogram a week becomes tattooed on the brain. And for a person with anorexia, anything above that is then therefore failure. And we need to reverse that and say, gaining weight is not a failure. Like, and eating a lot of food is not a failure as well. And you don't need to be scared of doing those things because I do know people who can put on a lot more than one kilogram in a week if they really allow themselves to eat, but they get scared because then they say, oh, but in treatment, I wasn't allowed to do that. I was supposed to be gaining a, a neat one kilogram a week and now I'm doing it wrong. And in fact, there are a number, yes, there are a number of programs where if you're gaining more than that, they might slow the calorie levels down. Uh, work by our um, postdoctoral fellow, Sani Makzumi, has shown really this very, this was her doctoral dissertation, and she showed that there are trajectories of weight gain. And so some folks gain slowly, but in a linear way. Some folks gain, you know, faster, but it's still in a linear way. And some folks have this kind of S-shaped curve where they gain quickly initially and then it, and then it sort of plateaus out. And so the problem is if you take those folks in particular and you, and you ratchet down their calories, you're going to extend their length of stay really needlessly. They gain weight rapidly. But 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 safely, they're not they're not having medical complications despite the worries. And and those worries come from a very real literature on refeeding syndrome, which is this potentially life threatening conse uh, consequence of refeeding, being underweight and then being refed. But our argument in the paper and, you know, is that is that patients that haven't done well when they've been, been refed too fast are actually they tend to be folks who have cancer or severe alcoholism, and who are much more physically debilitated than, um, say, even an adult with anorexia who's been sick for 10 or 20 years, if they, if they don't have other medical problems, then they can usually tolerate, tolerate from a medical point of view, you can tolerate yes. the, the more rapid refeeding. Yeah, and I've also, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I, I read something recently on refeeding syndrome, which is moving from a... Um, catabolic to an anabolic state really isn't it and the electrolyte imbalance that can uh, happen as a result of that but that actually showed that if patients were people who it wasn't necessarily the caloric amount that could lead to refeeding syndrome as much as um, too much sort of low fat foods and carbohydrate and that it, on, on a higher fat diet that was less likely so I think, right, so and I, don't, I don't get this quite right because we do it a little bit different. We do it a little bit differently, but I, you, may be talk, you may be thinking of uh, Sloan Madden and Michael Cohen and their group uh, in Sydney um, at Westmead, and they, they, they're some of the folks who really experimented with fairly high cal caloric prescriptions right off the bat, and they do that actually. Um, they've done sort of three days of continuous nasogastric feeding and then, you know, right into, right into fairly high dose, 2,500 kcals, I think, and like that. So... I think that's um, and and they've said and as long as you're not as long as you're not doing too much in the in the, too much carb, then um, you know what I mean. Where which is mm -hmm. which is really going to drive insulin and it's ins mm -hmm. and it's sort of insulin over release that gets people in trouble with refeeding syndrome. We tend to stick to a pretty standard macronutrient distribution, so a very sort of ADA American Dietetic Association uh, uh, sort of balanced set of, of macronutrients. So Yes, yeah, so we tend to stick to to that, and that has not been a problem. We 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 go very we go low fat, low salt, and and uh, for um, for folks who are um, with a BMI of less than fourteen or you know very sick who who come in, and th and those folks we start a little we start at lower, we start at twelve hundred calories, but we 
we get everybody up and we don't worry about that rate of weight gain unless there are other signs that they're in trouble. Put aside um, refeeding syndrome and we assume that somebody is, you know, not not in danger of refeeding syndrome. And but if we can take that out of the um, the equation, then ask, well, if somebody is clear from refeeding syndrome, why on earth would there ever be a caloric um, ceiling put on a person recovering from starvation? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that is the big safety concern for sure. So if you take that out um, and and I should say one thing, which is that we are located in, in a general hospital, uh, you, you know, so we have very rapid access to internal medicine docs and endocrine people and cardiologists. So, so we can be, well, we're not cavalier, but we can be, but we can be confident that if we need help, we can get it promptly. So I think it's important for me to say that. Uh, but if you take the, the refeeding concern out, I think the other sort of cultural piece is, has been the concern that treatment produces chronic illness. This is an, I think it's a somewhat older idea now. I don't think, I don't, you know, I'm, you don't hear as much about it. When I first started going to eating disorder meetings, that, that was, you would hear more talks about that there, or you would hear questions from the audience saying, but you know, if you do this, aren't you going to, aren't you just going to make it worse for people, um, by sort of forcing them to do something that's unpleasant? You know, isn't that just going to breed resentment and isn't that going to get internalized or whatever the model, the psychological model is, you know? Yeah, I, and, and I, I have been I've been told this also and um, I understand that. But I I think it's a bit of a catch-22 because so I never went through treatment. I refed myself and because I refed myself, I did. I'd never been told that maybe there should be an upper ceiling on the amount of food that I should eat. And a common sense point of view that was just like, I'm really underweight, I need to eat as much food as possible, which if you look at, say, even if you look back at Minnesota starvation study, in the final part of the study, when those guys were allowed to just say, you know, eat as much as you want, they, they ate between five and 10,000 calories a day. They ate as, that's how a body, that's how a human body responds to starvation is to eat a ton of food. And yeah. then there's this idea that somebody with anorexia, they shouldn't do that because it might scare them to eat a ton of food. And my argument is that while that is true, a lot of that is true, is because we've been told or given the impression that it's wrong to gain weight too fast. And that's why we're scared. You know, we are scared that we're doing it wrong or we're going too fast or our weight gains too fast. And in the absence of that, having never somebody like myself who has never been through treatment, therefore never been told, this is the way that you should do it. I didn't have that fear. And so one week when I, you know, when I gained, let's, you know, I, I think I gained a lot of weight pretty quickly, but I wasn't scared of it because I'd never been told that that was wrong. You weren't scared of it for medical reasons. You, you might've been scared of it for anorexic reasons. Is that fair? Yes, exactly. I mean, I, but I wasn't, I didn't think yeah. it was wrong. I, of course, you know, anorexia didn't yes. like it, but I was done with listening to what that had to say which is by the way pretty amazing but that uh, and fabulous but, but i think that's the um yeah so i think what 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 happens is that that the cautious clinicians who are have a medical reason um you know for saying something then that dovetails with all the anorexic reasons and so there's that sort of reinforcement and and so i think you know 
I think everybody's well intended. I think patients are stuck and and often you know wanting to get better but terrified and uncom physically uncomfortable. Very you know I don't know whether it's physically uncomfortable for you. Honestly, it was all mentally uncomfortable. There were the physical discomforts of the stomach bloating and and um, you know like I. I put on weight all around my stomach to start with, and that wasn't particularly uncomfortable. Yes. But part it was mostly mental discomfort. I oh, and you know, yeah. then we all most of us go through what I call recovery growing pains as well. So there's physical discomfort as our bodies start to heal and all that. But but you know, there's physical physical discomfort in the digestive system trying to heal as well and trying to tune all of that up. So yeah. I, I think that there is quite a great deal of physical discomfort. But I think that's the same if you're eating for me. That was the same as it, when I was eating 3,000 calories a day as when I was eating 6,000 calories a day. That physical discomfort That's was the, the same. same. Um, but I tell you what was a huge mental difference for me. It's to do with the restriction. When I was eating 2,000 calories a day, and that was a lot more than I had done previously when I was res strongly restricting, I put on weight, and that's because my metabolism was super low, and I put on weight. The problem with that is that I, having put on weight that week, I could look back and go like, I, that scared me, that fell out of control because I basically still starved myself a week and I'd put on weight. When I allowed myself to eat between five and 10,000 calories a day, I still put on weight at the end of that week, but it didn't feel out of control because I could look back and say, I ate my face off that week. That's why I put on weight. Yeah. That's why it felt in control. And I think that this happens a lot, and I hear it a lot on the other side, when people are in treatment, they're giving a meal plan of, say, 2,500 calories, and they're still hungry. And that scares them because if they're still hungry and they're putting on weight, yes. Yes. then they're like, what would happen if I actually responded to my hunger? I'd be 600 pounds yeah. in two weeks. And that's not true because the hunger is a response to restriction. And when we stop restricting after a couple of weeks, the mental hunger goes. And then we are able to, you know, we feel satisfied. It all sort of sort of sorts itself out the way that nature intended it to do. Um, that's why I think this is such a problem when we put these caloric ceilings, because no person with anorexia, or hardly any, I have known that some that have, in a treatment, treatment center, in the refeeding process, are going to put their hands up and say, I could eat four times this much, by the way. We, we don't do that. That's just too mentally difficult. But it's true for a lot of us. I think, yeah, and I think it's really, I think the point that you're making is, is, is a good one that, that the sort of logic of, of well, if I'm, if I'm this hungry eating, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred calories a day more than I was when I was at my, when I was deep in it. Then it's going to be totally out of control, and the data don't show that, right? Like the follow long-term follow-up show that almost, you know, most people are, are are normal weight or they're still on the underweight side, you know, and ten years out. And um, so I think I think you're right. I mean, we evolved, right? Uh, we evolved going from feast to famine, um, I, and and I think in, in in and which is not good for the obesity epidemic because we hold on to weight um, when there's plentiful food. But it's but it is it's actually reassuring again for the treatment of anorexia that that we can you know that that folks can handle a, a lot of food. Now we don't do six thousand calories a day. I think we've ever done that. But um, uh, but we you know but we it's we unbelievable do... actually how much food it's it's unbelievable yeah. how much food a person can eat. I'll tell you firsthand um, that I it's, it is absolutely unbelievable. But. And this is, this is the other side of it, you know, because this is when we go into sort of the binge eating that 
A lot of us outside of a treatment center, we go into periods of binge eating as a result of that restriction. It's that feast famine response. After a famine, it is yeah. a human, it's a natural human tendency to binge eat and to eat a lot of food. That's, that's how we would have survived those times. But because a lot of the time people who, especially people who have had experience in treatment and been told that binge eating is a sign of binge eating disorder and therefore they shouldn't do it, get terrified of that and they binge and then they think, oh my God, I'm out of control. I obviously have binge eating disorder. And then I say, no, you're just responding to starvation. Keep eating and it'll be fine. But you know, it's just that fear of I've done something wrong. That's the problem. It's not the food so much. And it's not even necessarily the fear of weight gain for many of us as much as the I've just done something wrong. I just ate too much food. They would have never given me that much food in treatment. I'm only supposed to be on 2,500 calories a day and I've just probably eaten my whole fridge. Now I have to restrict for a week to make up for it. And then that restriction begets another binge and then it happens again and then it can turn into a cycle and that's the problem. This is the cycle. It's, It's when it turns into a habitual behavior. That's actually the problem. But it was only the restriction that created that. It wasn't the binge that was ever the problem. It was the restriction. And I think that's actually a great point. Just to circle back a bit, that's actually one of the reasons, another argument really for why you want to get to weight as early in treatment as possible. Because having gotten to weight, then you can practice the relapse prevention. And of course, part of relapse prevention is to get onto a maintenance maintenance diet. And so to be able to say... Here I, you know, here I am. I'm at my body uh, weight. It's doing that thing that you that you mentioned. Of, you know, it's sort of piled around my middle, and I don't like that. But I'm, I'm the team is reassuring me every day that it's going to redistribute, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look like my old self um, in a good way. And then, uh, it, you know, and then and then practicing the behaviors, and you know, we use an exchange system so that when patients are um, are doing their relapse prevention stuff when they're out, out and about and have sort of free range human beings that they can, um, they can be reassured and say, okay, it's not a bench cause I can, I can look at it and I'm not going to measure everything out by the granule, but I'm going to be able to eyeball it. And, you know, I, one person who, who I work, have worked with in the past, she was in a treatment center where they had to at breakfast measure 200 milliliters of milk and weren't allowed 10 milliliters more than that. And we're told that if they poured any more than that, that was binge eating. And then we, yeah. I can I laugh about it, but it's not funny because by the time this person got to me six years later, she's still measuring out 200 milliliters of milk for her darn breakfast. So that is the kind of damage that that can do to somebody who's got that mindset. And I think that the dangers of that, the long-term dangers of that have probably were bigger than the dangers of any refeeding syndrome threat that is only actually really there for the first couple of weeks of treatment anyway. So then why does that fear set, that mindset come in? And then my cynical brain always goes to, well, it's because we're scared of allowing people to gain weight. And, you know, this just fat phobic society. And <laughs> I think it's more, well, of course you could be right. I have no idea, but I, but I, I think it's more that the, um, you know, that, that, Everything we we hear from our patients is about. I mean, there, there, there's often a tendency, and I, I don't know whether you've heard this in stories from when people were younger, to sort of negotiate with a terrorist, right? Like you, and so and so, uh, patients are they're, they're sort of, they have the idea. Well, look, if I'm if I'm 20 pounds underweight, I think I can get to 10 pounds underweight and sort of be okay with that. 
but and then and our point of view of course is well that if you're sick you're you're sick and so you should try to get well and it's not actually clear you you might feel worse at 10 pounds underweight because you might be closer to your normal weight and that might actually be even more sort of panic inducing and so i mean it's it's, it's very i think consistent with what you're saying that it's sort of behavior first you got to get it's behavior, you know, recovery is recovery. It's got its own definition, its own logic. And the logic of anorexia is is a sick logic. The game is to stay in as much energy deficit as possible. And we get a reward. Maybe it's a dopamine reward. I don't know if that's been studied. But to, if I did something that, that was in the favor of energy deficit, I would feel good. I would feel accomplished. I would feel successful. So there is some sort of reward in creating energy deficit and the opposite of creating energy surplus. So then I would feel guilty and just useless and all of those things. But I think that, so if that is the case, that, that, so what is also true is most of us have a, a weight at which those effects of feeling beneficial of energy deficit, we have a weight where that stops. So, you know, for me, that was about about 20 pounds ago that that stopped i that's when we start to come out of the anorexia brain and more into the healthy brain and i think that for most of us there's a critical rate around that i think that was also true for most of us that critical weight is not a bmi 19 and so when people are told well your healthy weight goal is whatever that is a bmi 19 then they're never actually going to get to that mental state where they feel good about it because the target weight's too low um, at the BMI 19, I was very sick. If I just stayed at a BMI 19, I wouldn't have reached full remission. There's no way. I, it was still, it, I was in a very awful headspace. For me, my perspective, just my whole operating system started to shift around between BMI 22, 23. Um, and so that is, that's, that's another argument for why are we messing around with low target weights? What is the harm in getting someone right up the weight scale and giving them the time and the space that they need and actually to get that mental operational shift happening. Yeah. So to what extent, and I'm not, I, uh, well, I'll ask anyway, you tell me, you tell me what you're comfortable saying, but I mean, do you think that it was getting to the BMI of 22 or 23, or do you think it was the time that it took between getting to the BMI of 19 and getting up to the no, um, because actually, and I spoke, I spoke to um, Dr. Buick about this. But this is something I found fascinating about my my own weight is that um, I have a critical weight, and I only ever found that out by going under it again and feeling all of the anorexia thoughts mm -hmm. start to mm -hmm. slowly come back. And then I was like, "Oh, that's strange." Um, maybe I should eat more food and my weight went up and the thoughts went away again. And then I, and I didn't do any of this purposely. It was just more complacency. And then yes. I'd get complacent and, I, and then I'd, I could tell like if, if the thoughts started coming back and they weren't even that obvious, like, oh, don't eat dinner. They were just things like, why don't you walk an extra 10 minutes around the block today? Little things like that. When that, those energy deficit driven thoughts. And I was getting those coming back just slowly and they're annoying. So I was like, why is this happening again? And then I went and checked my weight and believe it or not, I had dropped below that weight threshold again. And then, so then I thought, well, that's interesting. I guess I need to stay above this weight. Hey, why don't I just keep myself super safe and go 20 pounds above this weight just to be on the safe side, which is what, which is what I did. So it wasn't length of time because this is happening over a period of years. Yeah. And I'd been, you know, I'd been fine for a period of years then, 
you know, you, it was more complacency than anything else that my weight would just drop a little bit. And then I'd be like, this, I don't feel right anymore. I feel funky about things again. And so I, I know what that weight is for me. And b- believe me, it's not a BMI 19. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I think that, no, I think that's, I think that's great. And I think you probably just terrified a whole bunch of your listeners on the one hand. On the other hand, the truth is the truth, right? So like you're well when you're well and I, when you're not I, I, well. I think, I think it terrifies the person, it terrifies anybody's anorexia brain, but their healthy yes. brain is like, yeah. thank you. I knew I needed to eat more. I knew it. And now yeah. you've given me permission to eat more, which is what I get told a fair amount. Um, I think that the, um, that's sort of what that cutoff point that I'm talking about, which is, which is really the part that interests me. Why does that happen to me when I get below a certain weight? And I think that must be that something kicks in a sort of energy deficit that, that maybe my body thinks it's going into feast or famine again or whatever kicks in, kicks in if I go below a certain, maybe it's a body fat percentage or a body weight. But um, it, it's, it's, it's subtle, but I can, I can notice the difference. I notice thoughts starting to come back. And um, I, had a patient, I had a patient who, was been, who had been well, totally well, for eight years and then who got a medical condition that caused weight loss. That went un, that went undiagnosed, and the exact same thing happened. And she, and we were meeting. We we had not been meeting that frequently because she was really, you know, sort of done and dusted. She was right. in a good spot, yeah. right? Right, terrific. And then, but then, as her weight started to drop, and she was feeling more punky, and was actually having some nausea and occasionally vomiting. But but again, not it was not self induced. And we were sort of puzzling it out, and her weight started to drop, and she's and we and I would check in, and for weeks it was like, no, it's not, I, I'm fine, no, no. And then one day she came in and said, um, I'm a little worried. And then we, you know, rehospitalized her, you know, probably a week or two after that, and finally were able to get the medical diagnosis correct, got that treated, and then she was able to gain weight, and she's off doing great again. But. Yeah. You know, so I think I think that is an unfortunate experiment that you did, and that and that uh, you know, and that happened to my patient. But that you see that, right? Absolutely, and um, I think it's it's also sort of why uh, it, the problem with this though is you know BMI is nice and straightforward. You can say get to a BMI nineteen, that puts you at this weight. There's your target weight. That's like neat, isn't it? It's not as neat to say. Well, we're just going to, you know, you're going to gain weight, you're going to get into the healthy weight range, and then we'll know your weight restored when your mental state shifts from one that favors energy deficit to one that doesn't. People don't like that answer. They want to be given a number. And I can't give a number. I can't tell you when when your mental state's going to shift. But... I think that, 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 that that's something that we can't measure, but it's so important because then if people get to this BMI, this golden number of 19, and... Then they're told, okay, well, you're fine, off you go. But but they're absolutely not. Then it's that that whole treatment experience was pretty much made null by the fact that they're just going to come out and lose a load of weight again and go straight back down to where they were. But they're going to come. They're going to go down to where they're more to where they were, even more reluctant as a sense to go back into treatment because then they say, well, I tried treatment. I got to a BMI 19. I still had a really bad mental state. It doesn't work for me. I'm obviously uncurable. Ah, so, right. And that is this whole other literature that we, I don't know, we, I don't know if we should talk about it or not, but we're, we're, we're nearly ready to submit another paper looking at what the predictors of outcome at six months are. Yeah. Interesting. It turns out that if you build a mathematical model and, and ask, you know, how important is duration of illness? 
how important is the number of hospitalizations? How important is age? Uh, how important is depression score at admission? Uh, none of that's important. What matters is discharge BMI. And that's what keeps, and, and now that's, that's what matters in terms of maintaining that BMI at six months. Yeah, absolutely. It's because that mental state shifts from one that favors energy deficit to one that doesn't care about it as much. Yes. You know, when, when I'm well, you can say it's, it's just nothing really matters that much. You know, you say want pizza for dinner. I'm like, sure. Yeah. Why not? I know, you know, like when I'm not well, that would be unfathomable to say, yeah. do you want to have pizza for dinner? Because my whole brain just sparks off. It favors energy deficit and is very scared of things that might put me into energy surplus. And it's, a, it, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm two different people. I feel like, because when I'm in that energy deficit, place i see the world differently it's like having a different having a different lens on where everything i see is looking for energy deficit and that's the goal and that goes away at a certain weight not overnight but it starts to go away and just everything about me relaxes and it mm -hmm. feels fine and and actually very delightful <laughs> to be able to do those sorts of things you know that yeah so that's what we should be doing then clearly actually right is looking for some marker Let's say, you know, if you're right, and it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you were, um, if, if, and, and it would further inform treatment, right? Because then you could say, well, look, we, we get everybody, we, we, get every, we measure something, and then we know what your actual target weight is, the target weight at which you're going to become healthy. I think, it, it, I think there has to be some time involved mm -hmm. because, because mindset changes slowly because of mm -hmm. habit learning, and that takes... Mm -hmm. Uh, like if you're going to quit smoking, your odds of having quit smoking are much better at six months. And they mm -hmm. like if you get to that point, um, if you if you can stay quit for six months, your odds of staying quit are much are much higher mm -hmm. uh, than that. You know, like that we know. And and, you know, most most people who are addicted to substances, you know, have to try multiple times. And the longer they stay sober, the better they do. And but what we so what we need is what we need. What would be ideal is if we had something, a scan or a blood test or whatever um, that would say. Right. When, when this, when we cross this threshold, because it might be a BMI of 22, 23, it might be a BMI of 19 for some people. And, and, and we don't, you know, and, and so we, we don't know, but if we were able to inform treatment, so I'll get right on that. And, uh, <laughs> well, it might come up in the genetics work that's being done. We might have some magic way of telling that. Yeah. Um, the reason that it might save the insurance companies money is because what happens when we get over when we get our mental state back is that we're not resistant anymore to eating yeah. and to resting and it, it's a wonderful thing it's, um, because then you know people are then less resistant and they're very invested in their own recovery at that point then you wouldn't have this massive relapse and relapse and relapse and relapse but they're just never getting fully into remission as i call it so it's been they're of course going out and the drive to lose weight is just too strong it's not about being resistant to treatment as much as just you know having that strong drive and um it's very difficult to go against it um willingly i think but and yeah. not doing what, and not doing what you need not not having what you need in terms of what the biological thresholds are right for for getting well so like yeah so mm -hmm. it, we, I, I think that's right i think we don't we don't know this idea of sort of treatment resistance is is pretty problematic. First of all, I think it's interesting that it's called treatment resistance when it when it maybe should be called um, 
we haven't got it right for you yet. You right. know what I mean? I mean, and, yeah. If, if, somebody's, if somebody's having cancer treatment and not responding, do we call it treatment resistance? Or do we call it a problem with the treatment? <laughs> that's, that's, exactly, no, that's right. And in fact, I remember this from when I was in, you know, because this language shift um, was happening when I was in medical school and then in, 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 re in residency that, that uh, there was this slang that people would use. They would say, oh, well, she failed that, she failed that, she failed that. And, what, and, and so when I was on, early on faculty and I would hear my residents say that, I would say, just hang on, you know, who did the failing? Because, you know, it's just not, that's not what happened. What happened is the treatment failed. And, um, and that's, you know, that's okay. But if we're going to say, oh, we're the doctors, then we should take, we should take that on when it doesn't, you know, when it doesn't work. Yeah, it should be a lot of why questions. Um, yes. And how, you know, how can we improve this? How can, what does this individual need in order for the treatment to be effective? And especially a lot of us early days, we do need forcing into treatment. We're not going to go willingly, but then you know, it's sort of what 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 you, what we what's happened to us while we're there, and if if treatment, I think that once you've got someone through the door, that that treatment can always be effective if you actually sort of see what's going on with that person, listen to that individual, um, and you know, I hear too many stories about people being kicked out of treatment for doing a, a behaviour, or you know, them being t told, "Well, you're resistant, you're not with the plan, get out," and it's sort of like. Well, of course that person's going to do that. Everything in their brain and body is screaming at them to do that. So that is, that's painful for everybody, right? It's painful for the, it's painful for the patient who ends up feeling like a failure. It's painful for the staff who feel like they failed. And I, and it's also often painful for the other member, the other peers who are there getting treatment. They think, well, if I have a problem, am I going to get kicked out? Or, you know, maybe the team can't help people after all. And so um, you know, the, that being said, I think there are, you know, there are times when patients are demonstrating by their behavior that they are not ready and that they're, they're you know, and that it isn't going to work this time. Um, but you want to set the bar for yourself as the, you know, as a, as a, as a carer, as a, tr as a treater, you want to set your bar very, you know, very high. Say, have we done that? You know, we've done everything we can do. And, and if and then if it looks like there's still really sort of unhelpful choices being made, yeah. rather than simply, uh, it's, you know, anorexia is strong in this one. You yeah, know? it's and 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 you have to protect the other patients as well. If you've got a That's treatment right. center full of people, it's it's never there's no easy answers to this. There really aren't. But um, I do I do think that that there will be as as this sort of research, this sort of research and the genetic research, and when this sort of research and the genetic research comes together a bit more and we actually understand really the, the, the not what's underpinning the illness from a psychological or psychoanalytical point of view, but actually what it from a more like, I guess, physiological point mm -hmm. of view is, is what's going on, um, which I think is the really fascinating work as well. You know, I'd love to know because I can feel the difference, but I still don't, I still don't know what it, what it is that makes that shift. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, we, and we don't, we don't know. I would love to know. I, I might be bugging you to come back and tell me about the the, the next sort of bit of research that you've been doing. It's when we are able to challenge the mental models about like what treatment is for people who treatment has not worked. It actually gives them a lot of hope to say, oh, I can get better. Yes. Yes. And so I, I would love to come back. I think that there are there's at least one more conversation in this about sort of what what to, how to think about 
your own how to think about your illness if you've been if you've been ill for a long time and particularly depending on the kinds of treatment you've had or, or not and and whether there should be hope and you know i think the unequivocal the unequivocal answer there is yes there should be hope um but but then the question is well okay fine I, i'm gonna be i'm gonna try to be hopeful but but then what what i have you know what do i what do i do and uh you know i think we're gonna come back to we on over here uh the hopkins are gonna come back to the same answer like get do you know, do what you did which is to eat a load of food eat a load of food get uncomfortable <laughs> get get healthy and and not you know and not healthy in that sort of anxious brittle sort of like you know white knuckle kind of way and that's very hard but um uh but i think there's some evidence that that will have you know has that that, that has the potential so get to a healthy weight stay at a healthy weight and and that has uh, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I always say to people, if you know, if if you keep trying and you keep eating, recovery is inevitable. If, yeah. <laughs> if you keep if you if you get to a healthy weight and stay there long enough, recovery is inevitable. Yeah, for years. There's, so there's this, there's a famous paper um, by Steinhausen in, in the in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2002, and what it shows is that if you follow up a group of folks at you know five years. Um, uh, I think it was five years was the sort of intermediate point. Um, and then again, at sort of 10 or 12 years or whatever, the, what you see is that more people have died the longer you follow them. And that's terrible. And we should be thinking about that and, and fretting about it. But what, it, what that paper also shows, just as you say, is that the longer you follow a group of patients, the more folks will actually have recovered. And it, it, we don't, I don't want to be sort of, I don't want to be cavalier about that. I think people, you know, uh, some people do it on their own, as you did. Others need need help. Uh, some people need to be sort of pressured and squeezed into mm-hmm. treatment, um, and uh, we don't take that lightly. Um, and but but in fact, treatment is um, there's there are reasons in the data to be optimistic, and and uh, and so. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, really fabulous stuff. What was um, just was there anything about this study that surprised you in particular? What I, what I was pleasantly reassured by was the fact that something like 18% of patients, at most, 18% of our patients had low phosphate. Um, and that is, uh, so that's really good. That's a really, that's a really sort of modest amount. Phosphate's the first thing that goes, that becomes abnormal if someone's going to get sort of a full-blown refeeding syndrome, mm-hmm. which, which no one in our study had. Um, uh, no one developed sort of the, this full-blown, very serious medical picture. I mean, lots of, you know, so 20% of our patients, 18.5% of our patients developed low phosphate, and they, then you just give people phosphate by mouth. Um, and we do give, for our very sick folks, we give them intravenous um, intravenous glucose. I think one of the things that was, that's been really interesting for me to sort of go, go on this journey of sort of trying to document what we're doing and be thoughtful about it and reflective is... Um, is well is this question of well what are the things that we we are doing that that are helping patients again being humble about the fact that we're not able to help everybody every time i mean that's absolutely true anybody who works with patients long enough has a whole stable full of people who they think could have done better and what could we have done differently but that being said i think you know th- there's this re- real sense in uh in which when you when you try to look dispassionately at your own work, that's another thing too, sort of thinking about, well, we're really invested in the work that we're doing, but what is it that's actually working? 
And we came up with came up with a few things and sort of seeing part. So one of the things that we do is we have partial hospital patients together with inpatients. Um, and I think that's really helpful because that because the partial hospital patients are either clo they're close to their goal weight or they're at their goal weight and they look they're, they look less miserable. It look, you know, to be in a room with them or to sit at a table with them is a much more normal experience. Yes. So I so for, for our folks who are sicker to be to sit in group with them and hear folks talk about, well, I went to, you know, I, I had a day off from the program and I went and sat in, you know, Barnes and Noble and I have a life, <laughs> had a life for a day. Um, yeah, that was really, you know, that's really reassuring. That's really good. And that provides something that no amount, I think, of, uh, of sort of psychological therapy um, and you know can, can provide yeah I'm very big on peer support and um, it's it's because it's nothing like someone that you know has been through the shit that you're currently in saying of course I had all of the fears that you do about being in a bigger body but actually you know it's 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 okay it's not that bad and that that's helpful and we sort of tend to trust that a little bit more than some doctor who you think well, yeah. you don't, you've never done this yeah. um yeah well it, really fabulous i'm so excited about this type of work i mean i'm i'm really excited about this yeah. type of work because but i'm always telling people to eat more food and and it's just like this this it helps us to eat more food it's like you've got to run straight at that fear rather than away from it and the more that we can run at that fear the more that we come out the other side i think without that fear um if we weight restore while staying within the fear of the food the whole time that fear is still there when we get weight restored and that's not that's not fun for anyone run straight at that fear which is all very well but do you know what's um scary about running straight out the fear? It's scary. That's what's scary about it. Sometimes I talk about that sort of thing as if it was easy for me to do that, as if it was easy for me to run straight out that fear. And it wasn't. There was... I, I spent many a meal time looking at a plate of food and crying while I was eating it. It wasn't easy. It was really scary. And for that reason, I don't recommend that you do it on your own. I don't recommend that you do it on your own. I recommend that you do it with copious amounts of support. And the right kind of support for you is the right kind of support for you, you as an individual. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that support is going to look what it traditionally looks like. And it might mean that if you've already been through traditional support, as um, we were talking about in the podcast, that it's not that you can't recover, it's just that you need to try something different. A huge thank you to Dr. Graham Redgrave for talking to me. I really enjoyed that conversation. As you can see, I, I sort of forgot I was recording actually and was just chatting to him and so um, quite passionately as well. Because I do feel passionate about this stuff. People, this is important. It's, it's really important. These are people's lives. These are your lives a lot of the time. And we have to be flexible. We have to find what works for the individual. I think that's the main thing. The sort of, you know, exposure to vast amounts of food in order to break all of those rule sets. That's what worked for me and that's what worked for some people. Maybe it's not what's gonna work for you. Maybe you need a slower approach. Maybe you need a little bit of a tweak. Maybe you need more psychological interventions. But 
that doesn't mean either is right or wrong. It just means that we have to be open-minded. We have to look for an end goal and we have to say, how can we be flexible? How can we get this person to this goal? What do you need in order to recover? By the time you are an adult with an eating disorder, you usually know your, your own illness and you know what you need. And I think that we have to be able to separate the eating disorder brain from our healthy brain and allow that healthy brain to say, hey, this is what I need. Be that mealtime support, be it peer support, be it therapy, be it DBT, whatever the hell it is you need. Try and find that thing out because that will be the key to help you run into that fear. Just whatever you do, don't hang around and wait until you feel ready because that's not going to happen. You're never going to feel ready. You just got to do it. You have to be so brave to recover from this illness. But if I was able to do it, believe me, you can as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, well, there'll be more along the way. I'm quite on a science kick this um, this summer, so I've got a few more of those types of research article interviews coming up. If you have any ideas for things that you'd like me to discuss, then send me an email. And my email address is info, I-N-F-O, at tabithafarrar.com. Or you can tweet at me and my Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Either works. Let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know what you want me to look into or talk about. If you like this podcast, then you could give us a rating on iTunes. And that's helpful because it lets other people find it if they search search for eating disorder podcast. So um, yeah, spread the word. I'd appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, cheerio.